Hello again. Good morning. Um, the reading today will be taken from the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 15 to 21. And if you would like to follow along, please do so. And the passage is printed on page 6 of the bulletin. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Lasse. I want to turn your attention to this card that you have in your bulletin, or should have at least in your bulletins, and this is the last of our four uh, cards explaining our mission statement. Why are we here? What kind of church are we trying to be here at Grace Meridian Hill? Whether if you're new to our community uh, or if you are a longtime member of this community, uh, September is a good time to refresh ourselves in understanding our mission. And so we've been going through this the past uh, four weeks, one card per uh, each of the four main components of our ministry, and today we have landed, last but not least, on our theme of being a neighborhood-centered community. That means that we're committed to loving our neighbors and serving our neighborhood with mercy and with joy. Uh, We are uh, intentionally a neighborhood church, and what does that mean? Well, we have some bullet points here to explain exactly what that means. Please do read that and get to know a little bit more of who we intend to be as a church. Pray over it and participate in this part of our mission. But as we turn our attention to God's word, let's pause together and let's pray. Jesus, we're asking for you to come and bless this time in your word. Uh, There's almost too much that's going on in our minds and our hearts. We admit it. Uh, Six days of chaos, in some cases, pain and turmoil, in all cases, just a lot of stuff. And to think that we can give our full attention to you, is that possible now? We pray that it would be by your Holy Spirit. So come and speak loudly and clearly to our hearts through your word. Let the light of your gospel shine in every corner of darkness in our hearts and give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. What gives you confidence? 
What gives you confidence to stand before the world? Especially when you feel anxious or when you feel scared, nervous, uncertain. What are those things that you hold on to to make sure that things don't feel like they're quaking so much? To, to, to give your sense of, yourself a sense that you are, at the end of the day, okay. What gives you confidence to stand before the world? What do you typically point to and say, this, this here is what makes me acceptable before God, before the world, before myself? You might say that these questions are all questions about identity, who we are. You might even say that they're questions about faith. What do I really put my trust in in life? You might also say, to use the language of the Bible, that those questions are questions about different ways that we seek to be justified. Justified. That's a word, an idea that we came across last week as we were studying the earlier parts in a few of the first verses of today's passage in the book of Galatians. Justified. What does that mean? That's a word that refers to a court verdict. It's talking about the heavenly court of God and the verdicts that he pronounces over us and that define our lives. Because sometimes, let's be honest, it feels like there's a jury and a judge in our heads, doesn't it? Pronouncing verdicts, guilty, not guilty. Justified means to be declared innocent, to get a verdict, not guilty, even better than that, a verdict that sounds like this, righteous. And what the Apostle Paul has pointed out to us is that there are basically two ways to live life in this world. First of all, we can strive all our lives trying to be justified by what he calls in verses 15 and 16, the works of the law. That is by earning God's righteous verdict, earning God's you're okay, earning God's forgiveness and acceptance by the things that we do. And you better believe, therefore, you better be doing a lot of them. And so we do, striving to perform on the basis of some standard of righteousness to make sure that we are okay in the eyes of God and the world. Whether if that's by trying to gain acceptance through what you might call a, a form of religious righteousness, you know, doing good religious activities in the church or in the privacy of your own home. Or it might be, rather, that you're trying to find a a form of acceptance uh, through driving righteousness, right? The way that you compose yourself on the road, the way that everyone else seems to be failing and you seem to be succeeding. You might be building your life around what you might think of as relationship righteousness. I I, I hang out with all the, the good people. Whatever good is to you, smart cool, chill? Who are those people that seem to actually be defining your sense that you're okay in this world? You hang with them, you associate with them, and you can almost hear the verdict in your head, you're great, righteous. 
Some of us have what you might call punctuality righteousness stewing in our hearts. How do you know you're accepted in this world? Because I'm on time for everything. And y'all are always late. I'm, I'm not talking the first person because that's not true for me, right? Punctuality righteousness. Maybe it's political righteousness. The people on my side of the aisle are the right ones and therefore I'm the right one and all your folks are the wrong ones. What are all these different forms of rightness or righteousness that we feel like we need to perform and create and earn and work towards in order to make ourselves acceptable to God in order to earn his verdict? And what Paul tells us is that it doesn't work. First of all, it just makes you an unbearable person, as you just heard in some of the examples that I gave you. You just live with this superiority complex, feeling like you're hitting your target and everyone else is missing. You're always looking down on other people, puffed up about yourself. But it also proves yourself to be a hypocrite. You cannot hold that standard of righteousness consistently, not ever. Those of you that hold in your heart punctuality righteousness, you better believe I'm going to point out next time you're late. Because we're all hypocrites. We can't even abide by the laws and standard that we make up for ourselves consistently, let alone the perfect standard of love that God puts before us. We fall short. We stand condemned if we try to live justified according to works of the law. But thanks be to God, there is another way, the apostle tells us. There is another way to be justified, and that is to be justified by faith in Christ. That means that everything that Jesus has done, loving perfectly and living perfectly when he lived on this earth, can be counted before God in his court as though you had performed them, as though you had done all of those things. So all the blessing from God that Jesus earned, all the favor from his Father that Jesus earned, all the love and admiration that Jesus rightly deserves is now given to you, is given to you as a gift if only you would simply put your trust in Jesus. To be justified by faith in Christ means to be declared with an incredible verdict, not guilty, even though you are. It means to be treated as righteous in God's sight, even though you actually aren't. I mean, isn't this amazing? This is the gift, grace that God gives to us a righteous standing in the court of heaven that you and I don't deserve and could never actually earn by works of the law given to us by God through Jesus as a gift. Hallelujah. This is his grace. The gift of salvation. Paul is quick to say, well, there's one thing that you cannot say. It's this, that, well, I'll just try to earn a little bit with God and then get a little bit of Jesus as well, as if I can kind of do a little bit of sharing. Let me be justified by this over here and then a little bit of Jesus. Paul is crystal clear in verse 21, Christ then died for nothing. 
What does he say? If righteousness could be gained through the law, through the things that you can do, well, then Jesus was wasting his time. We don't need him. Then he didn't save anyone. If you can save yourself, Jesus wasted his life. And if that's true, and you're still trying to follow him, then you're wasting yours. But thanks be to God, there is no waste. Not an ounce of his blood. If Jesus is your righteousness, if you've embraced him by faith that he would justify you before God, then don't you know there's nothing that you can do to make God love or accept you any more than he already does perfectly. And there's nothing that you can fail to do to make him love you and accept you any less. You're secure in Christ. And so you can be, well, confident. The question we started with. Do you see this? Confidence before the world. Because my ultimate standing in life, in this universe, does not change in as much as God's verdict will never change. My lovability, my respectability, my value, my worth, my significance does not change based upon what I do or don't do, how you see me or how they see me. It only stands secure as long as Jesus stands in my place in heaven, and that's forever. This is good news. This is the gift of grace for you and me. And so here in today's passage, Paul expounds a little bit more on what this grace is all about and what this life of being justified in Christ really looks like. And there are three lessons that we can draw from. We'll run through this quickly, then we'll have some Q&A. Three quick lessons that we learn. Number one, the danger of grace. The danger of grace. Secondly, the search for identity. And thirdly, the meaning of faith. Let's take a look at each of those. Number one, the danger of grace. Now, maybe it's already come up in your own head, or maybe you've heard different objections in other places. This message of grace, this idea that the, the gift of salvation is free, is free for you. Well, it's easy to misunderstand. It's easy to get sort of tied up in a knot and to misunderstand Someone can hear the story of God's grace and say, wow, this is so great. I mean, really great because it's so tolerant. It's so non-judgmental. And it means I can do whatever I want, right? If Jesus is so gracious, then that means I can live however I want with no consequences. It doesn't matter to God. This is awesome. To which then maybe another person says, well, see, that's what I'm talking about. Grace is so dangerous. It encourages people to be bad. What you're saying, Paul, and others who believe in the gospel that Paul preached, what you're saying is if you're accepted by grace, then you're really effectively also saying that Christ promotes sin. You're encouraging people to sin. If God justifies bad people, then what's the point of being good? What you really need, they might say, is more rules and laws to constrain behavior, to keep people in line, tighter rules, more fear, louder threats. And for some of us, that's the only way we know how to live. 
You see, there is a sense in which grace is dangerous, or at least it feels dangerous, feels almost risky, because we're so used to living by that first system or paradigm of life. We're so used to living by works of the law, living by fear, living by guilt and punishment. It's almost like we don't know how to have a motivated heart any other way. It's like we can't even imagine that there could be any other way to live and exist before God. Well, Paul here is responding to these misunderstandings of God's grace, and he starts here in verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Right? Do you hear the objection? Isn't this dangerous? Well, his answer is what? Absolutely not. And he explains why. First of all, he says, the grace of God gives us a new love. Gives us a new love for God. Verse 19 says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I died to the law. That means I stopped relying upon my rule-keeping and my works to make myself acceptable to God. That, that identity of mine, that me, that used to rely upon my daily good deeds to justify myself, that doesn't exist anymore. I've died. And here's the incredible thing that Paul concludes it's not until that we die to the law, until we give up on earning our acceptance from God. It's not until then that we finally learn to live for God. And someone says, well, what are you talking about? My whole life or a person's whole life, they, they, they seem to be living for God. Very, very religious, very dutiful, very moral. They're very, very good people. What is it that Paul says? Look again at verse 19. Through the law, I died to the law, resulting in what? So that I might live for God. You can be very busy for God. You can be very religious. You can be very dutiful, thinking you're doing it all for God. But until you learn the grace of God, Paul says, you've been doing it all for yourself. Because what is motivations of fear, but that which pushes you into self-preservation mode. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm okay. What is guilt, but that which makes you just want guilt to go away? If those are the only motives you know, then you're only living for yourself. Paul is saying something really deep here. If you've only done things for God, or lived your whole life so that you can gain a sense of acceptance, or you're afraid that God is out to get you, or you think that you're doing things because it's going to make you more beautiful, or more acceptable, or more respectable, then you've only served God because you found him useful to you. You haven't actually loved him. You've only loved him for what he can do for your personal benefit. You're using God. Do you see this? But when we can finally rest secure, finally, that your acceptance is given freely by grace, such that there's 
no good thing that you can do to add to it or improve upon it, or no bad thing that you can do that can disqualify you from it, well, then you can actually start to come, hit, come to God just because. Which is really what we want in life in our relationships, isn't it? Someone that loves you just for yourself, we say that to one another. Do you love God just for himself? Which is another way to say, do you love him? Have you learned to love him? And then to do things for him in obedience and in service and in faithfulness, not because you're afraid of him, not because you need something from him, but simply because he's the lover of your soul. And you start to do this with other people as well. See, the gospel, the grace of God frees you, frees us from slavery to our secretly self-centered motive. And it's why with respect to our neighborhood vision here, what we really believe is that what we need to do in learning how to serve and love our neighbors is not simply just get out there and do it, but to have our hearts first changed by the gospel that tells us that Jesus has done everything for us. Because then you're loving your neighbor, but really you're doing it for yourself. You're loving someone in their brokenness, but you're doing it because you just want to stop feeling so bad for yourself. Or you're doing it because you, you kind of secretly like a, a little bit of that feeling of feeling superior to another person. The grace of God frees us to love. And so far from giving you license to live however you want, Paul is telling us, if, you really, if you're really changed by God's grace, then it makes you want to love God more. It actually frees you to resist sin. It gives you a new heart. It gives you a new passion to live for God. As Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist English preacher, once said many years ago, for those who are changed by God's grace, to them the amount, abounding grace of the Father is a bond to righteousness, meaning you want to do good things for God, which they never think of breaking. They feel the sweet constraint of sacred gratitude. You do things because you're grateful. And desire to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, crying after holiness, warring against sin, laboring to be pure in all things. A new heart makes all the difference. Which leads us to the second response that Paul gives to this question. Well, doesn't, isn't this message of grace dangerous? It just makes people want to sin more. Get off the hook, right? Well, his second answer is no, because God's grace not only gives you a new love for God, it also gives you a new life, an entirely new life. Listen to the language that Paul uses in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Six times here in this passage, Paul uses the word life or live. He's getting at something here. Because an amazing thing happens when we encounter the grace of God. Our lives are radically changed. It's not just your legal status before God that's changed. You yourself are changed when you've been loved like this. When you've heard that verdict that you know you don't deserve. Righteous. 
not guilty when you know you're not righteous and you are guilty. That changes you, doesn't it? It really does. The old version of me, Paul says, has been put to death so much so that I can say I've been crucified together with Jesus. There was an old version of me, the self-centered me, the using God and all other people to make life work for me, me. But now there's a new me, a new life in Christ. And a lot of you know this about your own story. I was speaking with someone this past week who was reflecting upon how they feel like they've changed since they've embraced Jesus. Just little ways that they can detect, I'm different. I am different. They said, well, before I became a Christian, politics and, and people were everything to me, or at least a lot more than they are now. I was so much more crushed, they said, when people disappointed me and so much more angry at people who disagreed with me politically. Why? Because I needed them to like me and to be good towards me and to follow through with me. And I also needed them to agree with me politically and otherwise. And this person said, look, I I still care about politics and people, of course, but they no longer define me. Some of you have changed in that way as well. See, that part of me, Paul says, is uh, put to death. Now there's a, a new me. And it doesn't mean that the struggle with sin is over. It's not like I don't ever do selfish things anymore, but fundamentally, I'm a new person. And being a new person means that I actually, maybe for the first time, don't want to be like that anymore. It's actually now a struggle. I fight against being as selfish as I know I can be. And finally, I'm free to struggle with myself for the first time. Before, I didn't care, but now, now I care that I'm so self-centered. Now, now I care to love God and neighbor. And the reason this is possible, the reason why this new life begins, the reason why we can say, I'm a new me, Paul says, is that there's a mysterious thing that actually does happen to me for those who put their faith in Jesus. In verse 20, we're told, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. I mean, think about that language. It almost sounds like something from science fiction, right? Jesus is living in you? The Bible says yes. Theologians have tried for centuries to explain what this is, this mystery. They've called it union with Christ. It's talking about how when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus and you are united together. All that he is is counted as yours and all that you are are counted as his on the cross. It's why he had to die in your place. But it's more than that. It's talking about how the life of Jesus actually flows into ours. Jesus actually makes his home in your life. I mean, just think about that. His presence, his power, 
his life in us. John Calvin in the 17th century wrote this about the passage. The Christian does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ so that Christ may be said to live and grow in him. See, God isn't standing far off just trying to direct you like with a leash as if you're his pet. No, he treats you like his own son, giving you power from within because Jesus lives in you. And if you could stop and think about this just for a second, just how much hope this can give us to believe that Christ lives in me. Because maybe there's someone here that's just struggling with an area of sin, an area of anger, or an area of hopelessness, or some vice of yours that you just can't seem to beat, do you know that God gives you real power to grow in that area? He's not just telling you what to do. He's giving you his own son living in you in order to change you and to overcome in that area. So the gospel isn't just more willpower or just a a, a change in attitude that you're encouraged to consider. You've got Jesus changing you from the inside out, helping you to believe, making you more like him, like his character, like his behavior, oozing out of your life and right into the lives of other people. You see, so Paul says the gospel doesn't just leave you in a place of of sinning all you want because you've got God in you now. And he's changing you. And in fact, you know he already has. He's given you a new life. He's given you a new power. So no more talk about grace, just promoting sin. If you really know the grace of God, sin is the last thing that you want to be about. Because the love of God has touched you so. Has the love of God moved you and changed you in this way? I didn't say, have you been a Christian for a long time? I didn't say, have you heard these things before? I said, has the love of God for you personally moved you and literally maybe moved you from one place to another? Action, life, choices, where you do something differently now simply because of your love for Jesus. What is that for you? The danger of grace, the seeming danger of grace. Secondly, let's talk about the search for identity. It's another thing that we find in this passage, the search for identity. Notice how Paul is making what you really might call an identity statement in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul is saying my identity is not what it used to be. My identity now is Christ. But what's an identity? Can we break that down just for a second? What's an identity? Pastor and author Tim Keller has taught on this in a helpful way, shaped my thinking in it. And he suggested that there are two components to identity, a sense of self and a sense of worth. A sense of self, a sense of worth 
what's that thing that makes you you, and then that makes you feel valuable for being that you? That's your identity. What's the thing that makes you you? What's the thing that makes you feel valuable? That's your identity. Keller also explained that in traditional societies, you were given that identity mostly by your community. It was something that was given you from the outside in. So you were assigned a certain role within a family or within a society. And so who are you? Well, I'm a son. Who are you? I'm a mother. I'm a farmer. That was your place, your role. That was who you are. And what you are and who you are, it's ultimately for the good of the community, not just for yourself. And of course, this model, this understanding of identity has had its limitations. But that was the traditional society's model of identity. Today, it's almost exactly the opposite. The way you find yourself, the way you discover or even create your identity is you look inside. You discover your dreams. Where? Inside. You you look at your desires, your feelings. You determine them or you discern them, and then you say, this is who I am. You express them in your life. So not only does your community or society not define them for you, but your identity these days tends to be admired to the degree that you reject what society and your family tells you you ought to be. I've just been noticing in the different movies and songs that my kids watch nowadays and the music that they listen to, how many of them have themes along the lines of forget what they think about you and go find the real you and this is you. Frozen. <laughs> Moana. Right? But it's not just the kid stuff, it's just in the water. I mean, I mentioned this mainly because we're living this and some of us don't even realize it. You are being trained about how you define who you are. Almost every time you turn on the radio, put your earbuds in, watch TV, read a book, it's simply a part of our culture. We say to one another, you do you, right? You do what you want to do. Sociologist Robert Bella has called this way of thinking expressive individualism. Dig deep down inside and express it, and that is your identity. You find yourself or you create your identity, especially on social media, by identifying your own deepest feelings and desires, and then you express them no matter what family or society says. But here's the thing. The identities that we create... Or that way of approaching the question of identity. Again, who you are, the real you, and the value that you find in that you. It's fragile. Because it can't bear up under the weight and the pressure of your whole life being built on that. I mean, really, if your whole identity is built on coolness, it's not going to last If your whole identity is built upon being a successful whatever you are in life, what about that time you fail? Uh, If your whole identity is built upon being a dutiful son or daughter or a faithful parent, if that is your core identity, what happens when you're abandoned or you fail? 
It's fragile. It can't hold up under that weight. We need something more durable, a foundation for our identity that doesn't change, that doesn't shake. Further, it's just so exhausting to live this way. That who you are is all up to you. You are the one that needs to create and author your own sense of self. Well, goodness, people are cracking day by day under the enormous pressure of having to discover or make something significant of yourself. Where you have to achieve your identity. I mean, at least in prior generations, you achieved just to achieve, but now you have to achieve to be worth living in this world. It crushes people. And for some people, it's crushing you. And lastly, there's this sense in which, hey, well, I can just express myself, feels freeing, but in fact, we're not as free as we think. I was thinking about this a couple months ago when I saw a lecture led by Alyssa Weichbrot, who's an art history professor at Covenant College, and it was a lecture on the power of images. And one thing that she did to communicate just how much we are shaped by the things that we see on a daily basis the pictures, the photos, the things that we scroll through online, was she showed sort of this trope, this theme in images that you're all very familiar with. Let me put it to you this way. When you conquer roaring rapids or a big hike up a hill or some kind of wilderness adventure that you are a part of and you pull out your camera, tell me, what is the picture that you take? Usually it's a panoramic shot of whatever it is you just conquered, the wilderness, the river, the mountain, and you make sure that you get a wide view of it, and you make sure that you're visible but not too visible because you want to make sure people see the grandiosity of what you just accomplished, and what do you do? Arms up, right? Arms up like this or something along these I mean, how many of us have pictures of ourselves like that? You know, somewhere, somewhere in your scroll of photos. You know what? In that moment, you probably thought to yourself, oh, I've got a unique idea. (laughs) I've got this great idea of how to frame this picture. Almost as if to say, nobody's done it like this. Well, of course they have. It's like you're almost programmed to take that picture because we believe that that's the best way to express the conquering self. Well, guess what? You're a cookie cutter, man. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you. You're actually just falling in line with an identity that's already been prescribed for you. Oh, we're not as free as we think, as individual as we think. Again, our identities that we try to manufacture are fragile. Notice how Paul is making a different kind of identity statement. Who are you? Who are you? Christ lives in me. Who are you? I'm justified. A righteous verdict that never changes, that's durable, that'll never go away. Who are you? I'm one who's been bound to the Son of God who loved me. Who am I? I am loved. Who are you? I'm united to the Son of God who gave himself for me. I'm the one for whom God gave up his own life. I was worth it. I was loved. And so Paul says, Christ is my 
life. Not just I believe in Christ. Christ is me. There's, there's almost this union of identities where he's saying just there's everything about me. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God because all of life is shaped and formed by this Jesus. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter one, to live is Christ. Life itself is about Jesus. And let's be clear that to say Jesus is the foundation of your identity doesn't mean that those other things are meaningless or relevant, those other identity markers, your gender, your ethnicity, your role in society, teacher, mother, lawyer, woman. These things don't disappear here in Christ. In fact, they are redeemed in Christ. But the point that we're making here about identity is that those things should not define you, not ultimately. They must not, they cannot be the ultimate thing that makes you you and gives you worth. God gives you something that can bear under that weight. And his name is Jesus. What's at the center of who you are. You might just be starting a spiritual journey new and afresh, and you're like, you're asking questions that are way too big for a Sunday morning. Maybe. I get that. But can I invite you at least to start to ask that about yourself? Okay, maybe it's not Jesus yet. Maybe, maybe you're, you don't even know how to ask the question, but get real. What's really who you are in life? Is Jesus at the center of your identity, those of you who profess to be Christians? Not just your stated center, your practical center, really. Is he at the top of the list? Again, because those other things are on the list. Yes, you are a whatever your calling is. Mother, son, woman, worker, neighbor. You are those things. But what's at the top of the list that orders everything else on the list. Paul gives us a glorious offer, Christ as our identity, giving us the terminal point of that search that we could say, at last, I've found what all my life I've been looking for. I've been searching everywhere in the halls of the academy or the streets of my hood or in the pages of Instagram, I've been looking and looking, and now I've found him. Indeed, I've found me in him. The danger of grace, the search for identity, and thirdly and lastly, very quickly, the meaning of faith. A lot of times we think about faith as purely an intellectual thing. What are the things that you believe? Facts. Or we Think about faith in sort of this impersonal way. Sure, I'll, I'll just leap off the cliff into this world of belief. Paul talks about faith in a very different way. Do we know how to talk about faith as he talks about faith? What did he say? Verse 20 again. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of us maybe have been Christians for so long that you can talk about the fact of God's love, but you haven't really embraced that God loves you personally. Or you're exploring the Christian faith right now and 
You know this and that about Jesus, but you haven't yet personally embraced that Jesus gave himself for you. Is there a meanness to your faith? Because Paul can't talk about the gift of God's grace. He can't talk about the Son of God. He can't talk about being justified without it suddenly exploding with all these personal pronouns. Me, I, me, can you believe it? All too often for us, it's too easy to keep faith at an arm's distance. Paul talks in intensely personal language, not about people in general, not about a system of religion, but about a God who has loved him by name. Do you feel known by God in that way? That your faith is actually a faith in a person, not just an idea. Faith in Jesus. Faith that means not only believing facts, but about entrusting yourself to a friend. Maybe this is what your prayer needs to be for how faith can grow in your life. That you would always pursue God in a way where the arrow eventually points at you. Where when you sit under a sermon like this, you're not the whole time thinking about a friend of yours that you think really needs to hear this. You're thinking about you. Where if you're in your life group, a neighborhood group, mom's group, Are you always sharing prayer requests about other people? Or are you actually taking the risk of sharing about yourself, seeing your own neediness? And when you do share about your needs, do you only share about external circumstances? I need a new roommate. Those things are important to God. But do you take it to the next level? The next level in, do you also say, pray for me. I'm really tired of being so selfish with my time. Or I really want more joy in my life. How personal will you dare to get? Because that's how personal Jesus dared to get with you. Didn't love you from afar and didn't love you without cost, but loved you by name, died for you, giving up everything for you to justify you so that he might live in you. There's no more personal savior than this. Don't you want to know him? Don't you want to know his grace? Let's pray. We do. We do want to by faith. So come. Come, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. And help us all be able to say with joy, confidence, Jesus loves me, gave himself for me, So now I live for you. So change our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.